you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Cameron Hughes Wine, Mint Mobile, Squarespace, Skylight Frames, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we explored the first part of author Joe Fisher's journey to establish proof of the identities of the spirit guides he was contacting through a channeling medium. His efforts to garner that proof fall into an old, familiar pattern that we here at Astonishing Legends have seen repeatedly. It often seems to become this quixotic undertaking that gets more complex and unreliable the closer you get to the answers you so desperately seek. Again, we'll ask you to acquiesce to the idea that these communications are coming from something more than just the person doing the channeling. If what Joe is saying is true in his book, it would seem beyond impossible that the mediums he visited could have provided complex knowledge of geography, geography, linguistics, and little-known military protocols, especially regarding events that were only known to a handful of people decades ago. Once you move past that, the rational mind demands to know who we're communicating with in these scenarios. Joe Fisher never really found out, and his efforts to get to the bottom of that question may have been the beginning of the end for Mr. Fisher. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Only when the struggle was far advanced did I finally comprehend the meager state of my resources, as well as the might and swiftness of the unseen enemy. Let this be a warning to us all. Joe Fisher, page 307 of The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, published by Paraview Press. Join us tonight along with our special guest, Richard Haddam, for the closing part of our series on author Joe Fisher's journey to discover what channeling really is. And we're back. Wow, that was super. But you're not, that was basic. You're not used to that? No. I'm, I'm, I'm going uh, old school basic. Oh, well, I feel like old school yeah. with originally was, uh, and we're, but you did a lot, there was a lot of drama, but it all yeah, fell by the wayside. We're just, look, this is a year of change. Okay. I haven't noticed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. Well, <laughs> it's getting very stale in here. It is getting pretty stale. Well, folks, we are back and look at that. It's almost Christmas. I, I know last week I said we were doing holiday merch, but in light of all the recent rebranding and the new owl and everything, we're just going to keep that simple with the new ceramic mugs, which we've just ordered. So we should have them before too long and we'll let you know when they're in the store. But a quick reminder that we already have the insulated tumblers with tops that uh, will keep drinks hot or cold. Just visit astonishinglegends.com. Click on shop to check that stuff out. Uh, the mugs aren't there yet, but they should be in a week or yeah, and if you're a fan of OG true crime and the story of Jack the Ripper, I was a guest on the podcast Vanished, where I sat down with our good friend Chris Williamson for a discussion about some of the psychological aspects behind that horrific spree and our thoughts regarding that infamous case. It dropped on November 14th, so look for Vanished wherever you get your podcasts. And that episode was called Vanished Jack the Ripper, Ripperology Part 1, and it's a pretty riveting analysis with a lot of your favorite podcasters. 
Well, we are back to finish up our series here on the Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts and that story, which originally was called Hungry Ghosts. I I feel like I might have glossed over that, that Siren Call is the second edition that came out 10 years later. And that's the book that you'll find now. So when we wrapped up last week, we talked about how Joe had gone to try and verify some of this information that he was getting from these guides. And I use the term guides in air quotes, because now we're starting to wonder whether they really are guides or what exactly they are, because they're coming through with all this really specific information that is verifiable in terms of events to a certain extent. But it seems like when you go to nail down the actual person or human being at the center of the guide's story, that's when things start to unravel. And that's what he's finding out, right, Rich? Yeah. And isn't that strange that perhaps the simplest part to get right is the part they intentionally get wrong. I mean, again, for the skeptics out there or the the debunkers, and by the way, this is all in the 1980s, so it's not just with the click of an internet button can you find out detailed information. If someone goes to England, finds out all this information, and you really want to pull off a hoax, you're going to use the name of a real person. You're going to find out that person's life. You're going to actually do the hoax. That's how you would do a hoax. You wouldn't do a hoax that falls apart through one of the most obvious things that you would check. So again, we're setting aside the idea that this was hoaxed, but now we're left with a more puzzling question. Why would a discarnate intelligence give you a ton of really accurate information, but give you the wrong name that they're identifying themselves by. There is something about the rules. And that is, I had heard from a trusted psychic, and I'm not sure if she classifies herself as a medium, but there's certainly some communication with the other side and entities from the other side in her work. And she said that one of the main overriding rules that the entities from the other side are bound by is that they are not supposed to let us know some information. They can't tell us everything by their set of rules. Mostly what she was referring to was about how wonderful, this is her interpretation of it, what she thinks, how wonderful the other side is, because that would influence the daily living of our earthly lives. So they're not supposed to let on certain details, but certain communication can occur. But that is one of the main overriding rules. And we do love to talk about the rules here. Well, let's be clear. These are your rules for us. I mean, well, you no, set no, down these, these are, rules. Somehow and they the got a copy are... of your rules. Yeah. <laughs> I don't control the universe as much as uh, people have accused me of. But that is one of the things that we've learned from early on when Scott and I first started doing this. Why do certain things seem to happen and others don't? That would logically take place. You have an evil entity. Why can't they directly harm you? doesn't seem they can, but they can indirectly. They can whittle away at you. They can try to make you crazy. They can gaslight you. They can drain your energy slowly, bit by bit, until, you know, you reach your final doom. There are things that they seem to be able to do directly, some things they can do indirectly, some things, in a way, can bend the rules a little. but. Maybe they know those things and maybe they don't know all those things, but they do seem to operate by a set of certain principles that are above them. It's not clear to me whether the rules of communication in this case are ones that they're trying to adhere to. 
out of whatever is appropriate behavior or ones that they're being forced to adhere to just yeah. by their nature. Because if you accept, like you were saying, Rich, this really specific information is coming through, but they can't quite get a name exactly right or put a, a specific person in this position, is that because they are incapable of it because of the way everything works as opposed to, oh, we're not supposed to do that, so I'm not going to do that. You know, it's more like a, a capability issue. And the other thing is that they talk at length about spirit interaction and raising your spiritual level. They talk about metaphysical subjects all the time, but what they don't do is come out and say, I was a farmer in England in the 1850s. I can't tell you my name because we have rules here. And one of the rules is we cannot literally tell you exactly who we were when we were alive. Bearing that in mind, I can tell you a lot. I can tell you where I lived. Like they don't even cop to that much. So why did they say my name was and then give you a false name? Joe Fisher was very upfront. He said from his first encounter in Aviva's condo on that first Friday night, I'm here to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And Russell, Aviva's guide, was fully aware of it and even provided a warning. Yeah, page 31 of the uh, edition that you and I both have, uh, I think all three of us have. This was from Russell, communicating through Aviva. Perhaps the first thing you must establish is whether a guide is in fact a guide or a playful spirit and not a guide at all. Wow, how crafty and how much smarter is it if you're lying to tell someone, well, what you really got to do is look out for liars. Now, let me help you with that. Yeah. Because <laughs> it immediately right. puts you on the other side of the equation. So yeah, it's like, it's oh, the, I it's can the trust con man. you. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It is. It's, yeah, it's it, a confidence it, it, game. It's very calculated. And that's what's really fascinating to me about this whole story. All right, well, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's move on to the next part of the story. This is how it's going for him. He had latched on to these particular personalities or past life experiences that seem to be coming down through the guides that had all these details that could be verified or seemed like they could be verified. And he could go and he could write this book and have proof that this information was real. And in his first journeys, what's he finding out? Well, as we recall from part one, Joe's confidence in these spirits was really dealt a blow because Ernest's story didn't hold up in the most important way, the guy's real name. So he comes back, Ernest backpedals, but then when Ernest is reborn on July 13th and they manage to find out where and what the new kid's name is, and then that checks out, well, then suddenly Joe is buoyed back up again and he decides, you know what? It's time to hunt the great white whale. It is time to really settle this because now he's got to know, is Philippa real? So once again, to Europe, this time to Greece, to see if he can find the village of Theros, and while he's there, check on the history of the region and see if her story checks out. Yeah, and it's hard to find Theros. There's a lot of legwork that goes into that because it's not there anymore. And also these little villages, apparently they were changing names frequently and you've had things happen along the way, volcanic eruptions, erosion, construction, all that stuff. He has to undertake a very serious course of action and meeting with these historians and saying, can we figure out where this might have been? And he's very focused. And I think it's important to remember here too that 
he, and he says as much in the book, he's in love with her. He wants to verify this story, that this is true, that they had this past together. And one thing I don't know if we mentioned in part one was he had had a, a vision or a dream of this dusty area with a tree and some dry brush and sand and rocks and boulders. And when he went to talk to Philippa through Aviva about that, she was like, yes, that was our spot. That's where we went to get away and make out, you know, or whatever. Right, but yeah. but now I'm thinking <laughs> you, you could have been describing Bakersfield. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> well, sort of. That's one of the things, again, I want to talk about a little bit in the conclusions is if you decide that everything is not necessarily truthful here, I find myself wondering if you believe any of this at all. I mean, first you got to get past, oh, Aviva's a con artist. She's making all this up. But let's say you're getting past that, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But like, you have to determine when he says, oh, I had a vision, and she says, that's our spot. Is that because she planted that in his mind? Or is she just confirming something that he had a dream and she's like, okay, no, that's our spot. It's a chicken and an egg thing in terms of the communication. What are the origins of the experiences that are taking place for him outside of the actual sessions? Are those origins truly from him or are they random origins that then when they come in, the guy just says, oh, yep, that was me. This was us or that sort of thing. Do you, either of you recall Joe putting forth a test message saying, um, this is what you would do to test uh, bad information, saying, uh, oh, I, I dreamed we were on a rowboat in this bay and you had a parasol or whatever. And Philippa says, yes, that's exactly right. We did do that. And it's like, that never happened. Well, no, he got confirmation of a thought that he had had. But unlike John Keel, for instance, in the Mothman prophecies, he was not as aggressive. The entities that John Keel was contacting did not elicit any emotion within him other than fear and mild revulsion and curiosity, but not love. And I think Joe might have been a little hesitant to go that far because in a certain way he was protecting this fantasy image he had of her. I don't think that until this point he really wanted to test it. But once he got on that plane and flew to Europe and went to Greece to check it out, again, it's like I'm going to meet this pen pal who I've fallen in love with. And when the plane lands, I'm going to walk onto terra firma and see this person. But that's a vulnerable moment. What if I see them and I've never seen them before? What if I don't like them? What if in person the relationship is different than it is on paper? He's way out on a limb here, but he's committed himself and he's going to do it. And as Scott says, we're talking about 1986, 87. You know, he's not just going to, you know, Athens. He's going way out into the countryside. He's meeting with people who speak a language he does not speak. Some of them speak English, not all of them. They're going through topographical maps. It's like, ooh, we can actually see these little hills and valleys. Maybe this is what she described. Here's how far away from the shoreline it is. He's really narrowing it down. And as he's doing it, He's like, this is all checking out. Like, there is a village. It's Now, I can't find Theros, but I can find the adjacent place. And it seems to be in the right area. And more and more things, that, again, appear to be falling into place for him, right? Yes, because she's making proclamations of, oh, well, it's five days walk to the coast, or it's this. And everything she's describing by walking, and every, there's not, at least on the surface for him, there's not a lot of anachronisms in what's being described to him. However... Later, when he looks back on it, he sees that there were some 
And, you know, I do think during this process, he was blinded by his feelings towards this being and definitely suffering from a little confirmation bias there. But he was trying to stay objective, but he was having a hard time with it. Because another one of the things that you find out about Joe as you go forward, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit here towards the end, but he was not lucky in love. He was not really doing great with the partners in his life that he had, the, the women that he had along the way. So this is the perfect imaginary thing, and it's going to be great when I can confirm that it's real, even though, frankly, he's absolutely no hope of reconnecting with her on Earth in a physical way. But he did want to try and determine if she was real. So he sets out on this journey. He goes and he, the closer he gets to finding out these details, the more things are starting to unravel. And it really is interesting. It's trying to catch smoke in your hand. Because people just, they're like, but it doesn't make sense. that There was no town of Theros. Some parts of this story just aren't matching. He plays a tape recording of her voice for people. And they're like... Yeah, I think it sounds like a mixture of Turkish, Turkish and, and yeah and Greek, but it's kind of odd, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, who would have ever spoken exactly in this dialect. And then ultimately, as his confidence in this whole thing is is beginning to evaporate, he comes upon the thing that finally made him feel that Philippa had been lying to him. And this is on page 218. He's looking at a, at a brochure that is describing the geography of the area, and he says, several seconds passed before the significance of what I was reading exploded in my dulled mind. How could Philippa have walked for days to see the big, big floating houses at Alexandropolis if Alexandropolis had not existed in the 18th century? Why, the city was even named after a 20th century monarch. I had caught Philippa in a devastating anachronism, and even though I had expected disappointment in Greece, such outright dishonesty left me sick at heart and brimming with resentment. So one of the main things she had spoken about was going to this port city, and it's a city that literally did not exist. She names it by name, but it's a city that doesn't come into existence until over 100 years later. This, coupled with all the other experiences he's had, and the non-existence of the village of Theros suddenly make him realize none of this is true. Something is talking to me, but it isn't who it says it is. And if it's not who it says it is, how can I believe that its intentions are what the stated intentions are? In other words, I've been in love with this woman. I felt her presence with me for the last two years. I've come to depend on her and now I discover she's been lying to me. Again, the parallels with a human romantic relationship are unmistakable. Hi, this is voiceover artist Trace Conger. When I'm not recording podcast segues, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. When you say... People had heard a sampling of her voice, just to clarify for the audience, you're talking about through the medium, that he had a recording. That he had recorded, yeah. Yeah. He's not somehow captured a, a long-running EVP with her actual voice. No. But it's Aviva is doing a voice 
that right. is in theory is representative of Philippa's voice and not of Eva's voice. Yeah. It's the old trope of when you see the medium in a performance, quote unquote, uh, when they're, when they're doing the weird voice and it's like, well, that's, gee, that sounds like somebody from the uh, 18th century. You got to assume that's their, their speaking uh, pattern and cadence. Could there be a misunderstanding or mismatch intentionally or unintentionally of a shift in dimensions in an alternate universe, an alternate reality where it's pretty close, but some things are off. I wondered that too. That does not come up in the course of the book yeah. or the communications. But And here's another thing that's interesting, and I don't think we talked about, was that when he came back with the times that he had checked on these other people that supposedly had formerly lived, these military officers and everything, and he, and he said to Russell through Aviva, you know, you failed these tests. Russell got real defensive just about the idea of being tested. He was like, you shouldn't be testing us. Very sort of, I guess, condescending about that. Yeah. But the reality was he could not produce the accurate information that they needed. That's exactly what happens. The, the ghosts become very defensive. They try to cover their tracks without really giving an acceptable reason why this stuff doesn't check out. Because again, frankly, if things aren't going to check out, they could say that. Or if there are slips in time, right. they could say that too. And sometimes they do. They're like, well, you have to understand, we don't really have dates where we are. And so it's hard to exactly nail down to translate to you where you're going to find something on your plane, because we're in this non-physical place and we've been here so long. But I will say that they don't take on a lot of that unless they're pressed. They don't begin yeah. by saying, okay, I have not been to Earth in 300 years, so it's going to be very difficult for me to explain where we were. I may fall into anachronism and mention cities and places which come later because from my perspective, I have seen those grow up around the places where we used to be. Um, keeping that in mind, I'm going to do my best. She never said that. She said, right. here's where I was and here's where we were and that's how far away this place was. Yes, and one of the prior characters that he was talking to through Aviva, one of the military officers that he had gone and tried to verify, seemed shocked and amazed that uh, there had been a reservoir created near where his house used to be. And he was like, why is there a reservoir? There's plenty of water. It's boggy. And so that was an issue that he complained about, which makes you think, okay, this information, it is definitely coming from somewhere, but... This particular spirit, and I can't remember if that was Captain was, William Alfred Scott or this one the was, other. That, that one was Russell. Aviva's spirit guy oh, who right, lived in England right. was surprised at things changing in his area yeah. and seemed totally unaware of it. Yeah, unaware of it. So there's, in a way, there's this access to this omniscient level of information. And then the thing about time that we're talking about, but then conversely, they don't seem to be aware that things have changed since they were here. So yeah, maybe they're confused about how time passes but by the same token, the further he went down that road, he couldn't verify anything real about Russell either, including family names. And by the way, he made all these names. Well, these guys were here and this was there. And there was this family that made axe handles and this was their name. And they went and tried to find all that stuff. And the axe handle family was like, well, they probably might have. They were still there. They were mm -hmm. probably. But really what this was about was uh, mining and uh, lead. Yeah. So that information was off. Always things weren't adding up, but the, when the messages came through, the spirit guides or whatever were there. And by the way, they hated being called spirits. <laughs> There's a more than a few times when they're like, we're humans. We're just like you. Yeah. We're just in a different place. And another odd thing, in fact, one of the oddest things I thought was that Philippa and Russell and the various spirits they were talking to 
never wanted to talk about how they died. Right. Yeah. That made them very uncomfortable, almost like it was acknowledging that they were no longer in a body. And what's strange about this is that in a typical session with a medium, when you are contacting dead relatives, your grandparents, you know, your parents, talking about how they died seems to take up the entire session. They go on at length to the (laughs) point where I've even asked mediums, I'm like, of all the things to talk about, why do they always seem to want to talk about how they died? Well, maybe that's the way to identify who they really are. You know, oh, there's a pain around the chest area. Was there a heart attack or something? And I'm like, why is that so significant? Wouldn't the significant thing be what they did for a living, what they believed, how surprised they were when they died and, and discovered there was life after death? There's a million things to talk about other than, yes, I know you had a head injury. I get it. <laughs> but these guys never talked about it. They didn't want to talk about it at all. Yeah. Interesting thought about that, our discussion with uh, psychic medium Jim Hunt, because in his um, cable series, Knock Knock Ghost, he was seeing this poor you know, middle-aged gentleman go through this horrible heart attack episode and that's how he died again and again and again for eternity. That's how traumatic it was to him and not knowing really what to do or how he died or anything like that. He's just bound to relive it, not really relive it, but that's the image that keeps going through. And that's what Jim was saying is like, it's just, it's not a loop. That moment was just like, oh, I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and not realizing then where you're supposed to go after that or what really happened to you. Maybe that's why it's such a big topic of discussion. Unless you really get over it and come to terms with it, even on the other side, you're bound to want to keep talking about it. So much of this sparks to me about the emotion of it and the denial, perhaps the defensiveness of it. What it reminded me of was an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Parallel. Steve Forrest plays Major Robert Gaines, who is an astronaut. He goes up, orbits the Earth a bunch of times, comes back down, and everything's slightly different to him. And they want to know, like, how did you get back here without crashing? And and he has no explanation. Uh, but his wife and his daughter know that although he looks exactly the same, sounds exactly the same, it's him. It's not quite him. And it's very unnerving. And to his point, he's very frustrated and uh, is confused because most everything's the same except for a few details and it's bound to drive one nuts because if it were radically different be like okay i'm totally somewhere else or this is not the person i'm talking to but when so many things are lining up and it seems like it should be this way i think it's even more maddening yeah i guess what you're i mean it it seems like what you're doing for us is you're wanting to give the benefit of the doubt to the guys sending the messages in this scenario Maybe they're confused because of X, Y, or Z. Yeah, cosmic confusion or a, a, a cosmic misunderstanding that neither side understands really. Or, or, But um, you know what? I'm also leaning that as both of you were, and of course the book does, is leaning towards an intentional misguidance. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think happens with Joe. He winds up getting pretty mad and sensing that there's a malevolence to this. And I guess what we can go ahead and point out, Rich, it seems like the time to do it, is that the further he went towards trying to nail down Philippa, the further he got towards figuring out that she was not a real person and didn't exist. So at that point, and he's already confirmed this with the other characters that he had even more specific information about that was more contemporary to his own existence— but with this, which was further back and a little harder to nail down, that really, for him, 
I think it broke his heart and it made him angry. And then also, and this was pointed out in an article that we'll make reference to here in a little bit uh, by Lewis Proud about Joe Fisher that just came out in a a free magazine called Edge Science uh, that we spoke to the publisher about, which I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But one of the points is just that in finding out that she wasn't real, it didn't only hurt him emotionally in terms of the relationship that he thought he was having with this being. It also hurt him from a career standpoint because he's like, this is the whole point of my book was to prove this and and get down to all this information. And now it's coming up short and he doesn't know what to do with it. So he's a little derailed or he's a lot derailed, not just emotionally, but spiritually and also from a work standpoint. So this is a really devastating journey that he's going on with all this stuff. And this is where Sanford Ellison comes back into the story. Now, Sanford Ellison was a member of the Friday night groups, the sessions they would do. And he had abruptly left the group about a year and a half before, and Joe had no idea where he went and had no connection with him, but this was the guy who told him, if you want to hear about the other side of the spirit guides, I'll tell you everything I know. So coming back from Europe and being emotionally devastated and kind of lost, he looks up Sanford and they get together and have lunch and Sanford tells him his story. Now, his story is really strange. And this is stuff that even though Joe was around for some of it, he didn't know all the stuff that was going on. So this is like, again, finding out you know about people you work with, but a whole drama that was taking place and you were never part of that drama. So recall now that Aviva is sick and that part of what is happening, aside from these channeling sessions with the spirit guides, is healing sessions with Aviva. Roger, the original hypnotist who started all this at the beginning, has been bringing her into trance and bringing her out of trance for both healing sessions and for channeling sessions. Well, once Russell, the spirit guide, Aviva's spirit guide, comes into being, Russell, after a few months, identifies Sanford as someone who can really heal Aviva. So he basically says, Roger, stand down, Sanford, you actually have a connection to Aviva and your abilities that you don't even know you have will actually be much more effective in curing Aviva and are you willing to do this? Now, Sanford is, you know, he's a friend of Aviva's, but he doesn't know her that well, but he's like, well, yeah, I mean, if a person's dying and you're a spirit guide and you're telling me that if I meditate or place my hands on her forehead, somehow I can transfer energy to her because biologically somehow I'm more in tune with her vibrations or whatever. Well, of course I'll try to do that. So over the course of weeks and months, outside of the Friday night sessions, Sanford is being drawn in and told, okay, now you've got to do this because you are the only one who can save Aviva. And so Sanford does it. But again, it puts a huge burden on him. Suddenly he's showing up three, four nights a week for these private healing sessions where he is instructed to place his hands on Aviva's body in different spots, like some supernatural game of Twister, right hand blue, left hand green, and in doing so, is apparently healing Aviva. Now, Aviva is in her trance at this point. She doesn't really know what's going on, but the spirits are becoming belligerent and saying, Sanford, you can't even think about not doing this. You have to do this or she will die. If you quit, she'll die. 
Yeah, and he was actually feeling sensations of heat and cold moving through his hands when he was doing these sessions, but it is getting really, really stressful for him. And for him, it's totally real, but he's feeling the pressure. And again, he's married. He has a wife who's sitting at home those same three, four nights a week while he's going and laying his hands on Aviva. Then it gets weirder. Now the spirits, Russell and others, are telling Sanford, you know, you are really physically and psychically and biologically and karmically aligned with Aviva. She is truly your soulmate in a way that your wife isn't. And the closer you can devote yourself to her emotionally and in every other way, the better chance she has of survival, up to and including the suggestion that he and Aviva become sexually intimate with each other. Right. So just backing up a little bit here, what we're looking at in Joe's case and Sanford's case is an apparent undermining of real-world living relationships in exchange for these other relationships that seem to be maybe not rooted in the best of intentions for the people that are here on Earth at this time. And then you begin to think, well, now, wait a second. Like, my mind goes to, so if person A has sex with person B, does the spirit guide of person A and the spirit guide of person B get something out of that? Are they vicariously also participating in the sex act, especially when you consider that in a channeling session, a spirit is taking over a body and using the body and speaking through the body. You almost wonder if while Aviva is in a trance and Russell has the floor, if you secretly went up and took a needle and poked Aviva in the leg, would Russell shout, ow! (laughs) Like, exactly to what degree is he inhabiting her body? Yeah, and so here we go with something that you can put into the theory about all of this, you know, and and to put a finer point on what you're saying, Rich, is it possible that these beings, whatever they are, that are stranded wherever they are, This is their way to get back because part of the idea about the reason they're there is because they weren't ready to move on. They weren't ready to leave Earth behind. So they're in this purgatory and they are lusting after things, earthly pleasures, that are no longer available to them. So then they set up this perfect way to have a physical relationship that they can't have on the other side. And the whole story around it is completely made up horse hockey just to get a chance to have a physical relationship through these. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, what you just said, that goes uh, way back to one of the Edgar Casey medium sessions in that before there were physical human-like beings on the earth, incarnate spirits of all various powers or whatever in- enjoyed injecting themselves into physical earthly form and derived a lot of pleasure from that. And there's a lot of intense energy that comes with that especially with human sexual relations. And you think, why is that so important to a a much higher evolved being who is much more wise? Well, then if you believe in the, in the Nephilim, that's what was happening with these spirits and human women that they found attractive. And then, of course, had a terrible, grotesque, large offspring that plagued humankind. And so you, you, you do wonder, they do derive some, a lot of energy and a lot of pleasure from earthly things and human physical things. And I mean, there's a whole practice of sex magic 
that revolves around uh, sexual human energy. It's a powerful thing. And even aside from that, they're clearly getting something out of the audience, whatever energy these people bring to these sessions, which are kind of like seance sessions where there's a lot of energy. I mean, we've all felt it as human beings. You get into certain crowds of people, you go to a party, it's a good party, you feel the the contact high, as it were. And um, apparently that's not something you can experience on the other side in the degree that you can experience it on the physical side, which maybe is why these spirits like to come through and like to establish a particular kind of connection. They're not just coming through and saying, hi, I'm a person who died, what would you like to know? They're coming through and immediately establishing a relationship. They're immediately saying, we're connected in a way that they know is going to draw you in and keep you coming back for more. And as long as you're coming back for more, they get to communicate. Now, we've all known these people in our lives, the ones you can't quite get away from. People call them emotional vampires or whatever. But <laughs> We just talked about those in uh, Strange Intruders Part 2. Yeah, and you realize this person, this romantic relationship, this friendship, this office relationship is not good for me. This person is constantly coming to me. Hey, come over to my house. Hey, do this. Hey, let's do this. Hey, do you want to join my, you know, chess club, my D&D group, <laughs> my, you know, right. my, you know, Sunday afternoon choral group? And you're just sort of like, you've got to stop. <laughs> But there's something that that person wants from you. Yeah. And you feel it. And again, it's hard not to draw a comparison to what's happening here because when confronted with the lies, the spirit guides never say, you know what? It's time for you to move on. Yeah. You've, you've come to a stopping point with this. I'm not going to argue with you. You need to go on. You know, when you love something, set it free. They don't set you free. They're yep. like, this doesn't make any sense. If you look just a little harder, keep going back. Check that library one more time. I'm sure my name is in those files. If you just look again, try a little harder. I'm sure if we spend one more weekend together, <laughs> our relationship will suddenly click right, onto right. track and everything will be fine from here on out. I believe, you know, there are maybe two or more strains of the energy vampire or the emotion vampire, uh, the people that suck the life force from you, uh, sometimes literally, in that they may not know that they're doing it. They're desperate. They're needy for some reason. There's a void they're trying to fill. You're the closest and most immediate and convenient person, and they've latched onto your psychic neck and, it, you know, will drain, feed as much, as long as they can. And then there are the other ones that do, and they're the more negative entities that they know what they're doing and they do it on purpose. And those are a couple of the more scary stories we didn't get to in part two of Strange Intruders, a couple of accounts where these were not human beings. They were in human form, but other entities, dark demonic type entities that they knew they were sucking the life out of you. And they, they even grinned. When it happened, when the person reacted, uh, and they felt like it was a gut punch to your soul, and you needed to get away, and they just give you this sick smile. And uh, I will just say quickly the another thing that uh, I had also heard from a psychic medium in describing the different types of energy on this side in human form and earthly form, and how it is on the other side with spirits, and that energy, which is the currency of the universe, uh, the medium which we all all things seem to need. On the other side, in the spirit world, it is very diffuse. It's like moonlight. It's diffuse, it glows, it's pervasive, like moonlight, it's everywhere, but it's dim. It's very low-powered. 
But being everywhere, that's why they're able to transport themselves anywhere they wish, a port to different locations, planes, vibrations, whatever. Human energy, though, and why they like it so much is that even though they have these powers with this diffuse, glowing moonlight energy, human energy is like a bright flashlight. It's very intense. It's very bright. But it's also very narrow, and it doesn't go very far. And so even with those limitations, they're attracted like moths to our flashlight-like energy and that they want to suck that up and, and tap into it for a little bit because it's so attractive and they theirs is so low-key and diffuse. Maybe they don't realize it. You know, it's like the energy vampire. Like, yeah, come on to my chess club. It's like, no, I. you just asked me two other things last week and I can't, I did one of them. I can't keep doing this. And they, they're just so right. desperate for this contact. Right. Take no for an answer. You know, it's important to point out here in the story that Joe and Philippa never speak again. When he goes back to the group to confront her, he is blocked by Russell, Aviva's spirit guide, who in a way says, I'm not going to let you talk to her in the mood you're in. And he sort of acts as in this sort of intermediary who's trying to talk Joe off a ledge. It's almost like, look, you're very upset right now. You're going to say things you're going to regret. Like you had feelings. What do you believe in more? The feelings you had for Philippa or some half-baked trip to modern-day Greece that you took. You're really going to tell me that none of that stuff mattered to you and you're going to allow this to derail uh, 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 your, your, your soulmate? But he never speaks to her again. And Russell, whose own personal story has been checked out and has been found wanting, does what they all do, which is, are you sure? Did you check twice? Check again. Yeah, I can understand that you may be upset. Hey, I'm upset too. I'm. How do you think I feel? Here I am. You're telling me you can't find evidence of me, and yet here I am. How would you feel if someone told you they couldn't find any evidence of your existence? You know you exist. I got to tell you, no one's more upset about this than me. It gets almost to the point of comedy. It's so strange. One thing that, about Russell getting called out on his weirdness, there's a couple of things I wanted to read here. This is from page 270. Um, the question nags. Why would they lie about their identities? If bent on deception, would they not appear all the more believable if they were to provide their real names? Perhaps the solution to this riddle lies in their well-concealed dread of non-physical existence. If they gave their real names, they would be forced to confront their deaths, which I thought was an interesting observation. And such a confrontation, which is clearly avoided at all costs, would activate their most hideous nightmare that they no longer exist physically. And so does their desire for emotional connection to us keep them alive after death? And once again, we're into vampire metaphor territory. Yeah. I'm Leslie Rodriguez in Arizona. And when I'm not excavating the ruins of ancient societies as an archeologist, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, back to the show. So Joe realizes that he's got to get out. He's got to give this up. And after a final confrontation with Russell in February of 1988, he realizes, ah, you know what? They're never going to admit it. I'm never going to be able to verbally battle these guys to the ground. I need to step away. And step away, he does. 
and continues working on his book, only now, as Scott had sort of mentioned, it's no longer a book about how to contact a spirit guide and improve your life. It's about how he feels personally deceived by these spirits. But one way or another, that book is going to get written. Now, what is not covered in the original edition, but what is added into the second edition is what happened to him as he was finishing the book and as it was about to be published. And what happens to him is really scary, almost as if the spirits were now going to take their revenge on him. He gets really sick. Now it can be told, this is on page 297, Early in 1988, I was living in a little house facing Adolphus Reach on the northeastern side of Lake Ontario. During this time of soul-searching, while still grappling with the emotional upheaval of pulling away from the guides, I noticed an inflamed swelling over my navel. It was readily apparent that pus was gathering within and fueling this growth, which was painful to touch. I tried to squeeze the separating appendage into submission, but without success. That's where that starts. It gets much more detailed, but it turns out this is a super rare condition that he has. And on top of that, he can't help but focus on the fact that it's near his navel, which is, you know, the very essence of his origins. And he felt like he was under a psychic attack. Was there any Western medical diagnosis for this? Yes, there was. He went to doctor after doctor, most of whom gave him antibiotics. But the antibiotics weren't working, and this whatever this was keeps getting worse and worse, and it's horribly painful. Finally, one night, he feels like it's going to burst. And so he, he practically crawls from his house through the snow to his car, because he's in a remote area, and he drives himself hunched over to the emergency room, bangs on the door, stumbles inside, and is finally admitted pumped up with morphine to kill the pain, and they operate. Uh, the doctor comes out and says, I'll tell you exactly what you had. It's this thing called what appears to be, I think it's pronounced umphalitis. Yeah, umphalitis, O-M-P-H-A-L-I-T-S. He says this, this is Dr. Earl Taylor. He says, this condition is rare in adults, but occasionally affects newborns. After the severing of the umbilical cord, the navel is a potential port of entry for organisms and inflammation can occur. Good Lord. Okay, so Joe cut his umbilical cord connecting him to these spirits and has now suffered the literal infection. They do the operation. He recovers. Again, he arrived at the emergency room late at night. They do emergency surgery. The phone rings in the morning and... He picks it up and the voice says, Joe? He's like, who's this? Well, it turns out it's one of the other channelers that he had visited in Toronto trying to gain confirmation about these spirits. And he's like, yeah, how did you even know I was here? And this channeler says, my spirit guide talked to your spirit guide and told me where you were. <laughs> now, this makes no frigging sense. Thank you for cleaning up this episode, yeah. Rich. Uh, the, we, we ran out of money to do any more bleeping after part one. So. <laughs> it's about know. $38 worth of edits. So yeah, not a big deal. But Doing everything I can to clean up my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Cha-ching. So it begins to feel like the spirits 
aren't done messing with him. Wait, and just before you continue, I just want to point this out again. He had told no one where he was or what he was doing. And this woman called him from another city and said, my spirit guide told me where you were. I wanted to check on you. So I want to come back around for the people who are going, oh, these channelers, it's a con. They're running a con. They're making all these people up or whatever. These kinds of things that verify that the information is real, wherever it's coming from, happen all the time during the course of his journey through this stuff, including here near the end of when he's trying to actually sever his ties with everything that he's been encountering. Just enough accurate information to keep you going, always. Right. And Joe definitely feels that this is connected, that still, if their intention at the very beginning was to open up his mind and his heart and his consciousness and his soul to them, and that it took him months and years to get to a point where he felt he could communicate with Philippa on his own, how easy is it going to be to close that door once you want to close it? Again, metaphors to relationships, romantic relationships often, that you try to break up with someone, but it rarely happens with just one text (laughs) or one (laughs) phone call or one argument. Closing that door takes some time, and he's done everything he can to close that door, but they've still got their foot in the door because they don't want him going anywhere, and they want to let him know they're not going to make it easy. Ghosting a ghost is not easy. Well, so now we get to the conclusion of this, and this is one of the most unsettling things about the whole ordeal for Mr. Fisher. And that's why we had the disclaimer at the top of the show. And once again, we want to say if you are feeling suicidal or having suicidal ideation, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you may know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's one 800 273 8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. I know our show is listened to all over the globe. That's a U.S. number, but there are places available in pretty much every country if you just take a look. So here's the thing about what happened to Joe after this book came out. He did commit suicide. There's a lot of things that present, you know, culturally when you look online about this particular book, There are people that connect what happened to him and his suicide, but it's a more complex picture than that. One of the things that we wanted to reference, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, Um, got some papers here because I've printed this out. There is an online magazine, and you can get print copies of it too, called Edge Science, which is edited by Patrick Huig. We actually corresponded with him about this because he was the publisher and editor, I believe, for Joe's book, The Siren Call, of Hungry Ghosts, which was the uh, the second edition of what was originally just Hungry Ghosts at the Pairview Press. So we reached out to him and he said, you know, he didn't really do interviews, but we just did an article in Edge Science, which is a, an online publication that he is the editor for. So again, here's another weird case of synchronicity. This happens to us, I would say, four out of five topics. There's something that just happened <laughs> to concur. I mean, we've been putting this off for years, like we said in part one, And this came out in September of 2020, this article about Joe. And this was written by a journalist named Lewis Proud. And it's fairly well-researched. We'll have a link to it and to the Edge Science, so you you can take a look at it. But Lewis really did his homework in terms of telling all the backstory that you guys have already heard from us about Joe's background and then what happened that led to his untimely demise. And so it's a lot more complicated than just 
he was disillusioned by the experience he went through in terms of Aviva and the guides and Philippa and that whole journey. That was part of it, but there were other things going on for him. He had uh, back pain from a debilitating back injury that was going on, and also he had several family members that had taken their own lives, and that piled up on him all in this time that this edition of the book was coming out. So in this article that Lewis Proud wrote, there's some interesting information and an interesting perspective on this from Joe Fisher's best friend, David Kendall, who was an atheist or is an atheist. And uh, so that you can imagine the conversations they must have had. They must have been pretty fascinating. Uh, they worked together at the Toronto Sun in the early 70s. And I want to read some of these quotes from Proud's article in Edge Science. Again, we'll have a link to that issue for you if you want to check it out yourself. Fisher was the very definition of a ladies' man. He attracted women almost effortlessly. Women loved Joe. He was smiling, chatty, articulate, attractive, and not super macho. Kendall is the author of Lazaro and several other ecological thrillers, and he told Lewis Proud during a telephone interview that his friend's great problem in the realm of romance is that while he managed to fall in love with many women, he failed to stay in love with a single one of them. Bubbling with geniality and wry humor, Kendall went on to relate a story in which Fisher, having fallen in love with a particular woman, went up north to stay with her and her family in a cottage, only to return from his trip, declaring that he didn't love her after all. So this was his perspective a little bit, not just on on his on Joe's real life relationships, but possibly what happened to him in regard to communicating with Philippa. It's hard for us to know and for anyone to know the mind of another. When I originally read the book and then finished it, and probably that same evening went online to see if there was contact information so that if I did somehow want to pursue this as a writing project, I could. And so within, I would say, an hour of finishing the book, I went online and discovered that years later, Joe Fisher had killed himself. And I connected those dots. Like, oh, what? Like, this is the even more shocking conclusion to the trajectory of the story the spirits finally got him. Now, that is a mistake in inference that I make with no other information at hand. Rest assured, there was no letter left behind saying, I'm doing this because of the spirits. As far as I know, there was no letter left behind explaining why he was doing it at all, was there? No. I mean, he did send communications out to friends and family, but nothing of explanatory nature. You know, an interesting thing here, this is again worth proud talking to Kendall, Fisher indeed believed, meaning believed in the spirits in the spirit world. But now instead of believing in benevolent spirit guides, he believed in their very antithesis. His angels had become demons. Kendall told me how about a year before the publication of Hungry Ghosts, during a canoe camping trip to northern Ontario's Manitoulin Island that they went on with several friends, they were seated around the campfire one night when Fisher related his incredible story. Disillusioned with the so-called guides in the book he planned to write about them, both his spiritual quest and career had hit a dead end. It was Kendall and the others who convinced him to commit his story to print. Thus, in a highly paradoxical way, what was supposed to be a book about love and guidance on the other side instead became a book about spiritual darkness and deception. Again, it could be misleading to draw personal conclusions about why a person does a thing, especially something as tragic as this. But we have to talk about it because it is something that did happen. But if we take one step back from it and reflect on the statement that Scott just quoted, it certainly does indicate that his view of the other world had broadened and become more complex, as I believe mine has and yours has and Forrest, I don't know. 
Has yours <laughs> uh, has yours taken on a, a dark tinge of uh, of uh, the sinister? Are you asking me in general about uh, the occult? Unless you already believe that there were, you know, dark baddies out there who were, you know, the ghosts that want to scare you. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, obviously with the Sally House, Scott has had his experiences. Right, right. Forrest? Since as a kid, I've heard of negative experiences. You don't often hear about those as much, of course, uh, other than things that are not so nice coming from the other side and things that want to trick you. Um, I think my awareness has increased, though, in hearing about anecdotes and putting together my own thoughts about the ways in which they do that, and that it's not just, uh, we tend to look at things in binary means, good, bad, a good ghost, a bad ghost. You have Casper the ghost, the friendly ghost on one side. It's like, oh, well, he's just wanting to be friends, and he doesn't mean to scare people, and he doesn't know what he's doing. He can't help it. And on the other hand, you have the laughing clown from Poltergeist, whatever's possessing that thing. But even in that movie, you have several things going on. And why do we expect the other side to be less complicated than this side? That's exactly my point. What are our simple binary expectations as living human beings? That when you contact something from the other side and it seems to be omniscient and omnipresent, and uh, shouldn't it also be nice and wise and, and want to help us and it's sure, there are those devilish things that have their powers, but things that seem nice, shouldn't they just be nice and good to us? And it's like, well, what rule is that, that they have to be that? Why is being an advanced, enlightened, ascended entity make you less complicated or less petty or less capricious? Look at the Greek view of the gods. They are the gods, they're the Greek gods. And again, of course, that's, you know, I believe human beings in legend and lore and myth trying to ascribe human qualities to supernatural, powerful beings, the gods, and explain why do earthquakes happen? Why is there lightning? Why is there drought and famine and all these bad things? And trying not to piss them off. But you look at what the gods do, and it's a lot, a lot of times, yes, there are echoes of what humans do, but far worse in their actions and their jealousies and their pettiness and their vindictiveness. And it's like, well, that's a model. But yeah, I mean, not to say that the Greek gods are real or not, but since Greek is a theme here, you wonder why we would have that expectation. I think that's just a, a simple hope, is that something more powerful than us is not going to act like that. What do you think we take away from this, Scott? Is, is this uh, a warning against channeling or visiting a channeler? It's certainly how I took it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I, and I think it's important to keep in mind that once Joe became disillusioned, I think he really went fully the opposite way, you know, because he had bought into it, I think so intensely. And then when he found out that he was being deceived, he got mad about it. So he immediately went to 10 on this deception and that there was probably an associated malevolence with it, I think which I was like, I don't know, maybe he's taking that too far, but I have to be honest, in the context of everything that happened to him, it does seem like they were dealing with a parasitic relationship that was damaging to the living people involved in the scenarios. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Wendy O'Killams. Now, back to the show. So, Scott, do you think that Joe possibly fed into it? 
with his potentially negative state or or frame of mind? I don't think so because he ended the communication. He pulled back, but there there was a nature to it. I mean, if we're going to get into what was really happening and what the communication was here, one of the first thoughts that I had was I'm past thinking that Aviva is faking it because I don't believe she knows how to speak mixtures of Greek and Turkish. And I don't think she knew about the big mind-clearing hoop on the Wellington bombers. And I don't think she would have known all the complex geography that she knew. It just doesn't seem likely. So I'm going to point that out again. And I think I said that in part one. We're getting past whether or not the information is coming from somewhere besides the channeler in this case. You know, we've talked a lot about your intentions going into a particular situation. You know, you, let's get out the Ouija board. Let's see what's out there. Are there ghosts out here? Are there demons? And we've talked a lot about how, you know, when you do engage in this sort of communication, when you open that door, you've really got to set your mind. And some people even do a prayer. They sort of say, "We, I only want the white light and the purest entities with love and respect to come through and everyone else to stay out, please. Here's the interesting thing. The people going to the Friday night sessions at Aviva's house were going there for spiritual guidance. They weren't going there to say Bloody Mary three times into a mirror. They were going in with the best intentions. And that's what makes it even more disturbing that they got messed with so deeply. We began telling the story of Sanford Ellison, but uh, and this was the gentleman who was basically being ordered by the spirit guides to physically interact with Aviva to alleviate her symptoms and her disease to the point where, even worse than what happened to Joe and his girlfriend, Rachel, this guy, he and his wife broke up. I mean, he ended up moving out of the house. And when Aviva, out of her trances, would hear what was going on, she was really put in a bind because she's like, this is weird. This sounds like they want you and I to have sex. And my life is on the line, but this sounds wrong to me. And it took a lot before Sanford was able to say, I'm out. In spite of being told that if he left, she would die. Being told explicitly that she would be dead in a month Mm -hmm. if he stopped. And he stopped. And my understanding from the book is that Aviva was like, yeah, we're going to stop. I'm not going to hold you to this. Yeah. And he stopped. And of course, Aviva did not die. And and, Not only that, uh, she got better. And so did he. And his marriage got better. And he put it back together again. And it's like, it was, these stories almost sound like drug addiction stories. It's like, I... I finally had to kick the habit and there were relapses, but I finally got out. And once I got free of it, everything got better. Obviously, Joe's ultimate fate was it's the worst. Do you, uh, you know of any other people that were participating in the, in the sessions or just from your own personal experience, uh, people you know, that got messed with as badly as Joe? I personally don't. No, but Joe did hear from people that had similar experiences. They they contacted him much the way our listeners contact us. Right, they, he right. did hear from folks. And I think one of the interesting things that he seems to be putting forth, and Rich, you have to tell me if you took something else away from it. And Forrest, I know you've read more of the book now. But I mean, the, the thing that I took out of it was that you couldn't necessarily trust any communication coming this way. I would say right. good or bad, because there's an idea in this book that 
the communication that is happening is coming from a pool of beings or souls, and I, I don't mean in terms of souls versus entities as described in the book, but just souls that are, as you said, forced in part one at a lower vibrational level that are, like I said a few minutes ago, they, they aren't ready to move on. So they're in this waiting room or this purgatory or the bardo to refer to the Tibetan tradition that he talks about. And they have access to, for lack of a better term, whether it's right or wrong, the Akashic record, this information. They can get all this information to make their case to you, but they can't quite get a name or a specific person and make that connection, whatever those rules are that we talked about earlier. So what's happening is, even if you're talking to something that seems benign, if you look at Philippa, her whole her whole point of view for Joe was, you know, we're soulmates, star-crossed lovers from, and that's, in, in theory, that's a positive thing, but what is she wanting from that? Is that just just the hope or the feeling that he has towards that being, is that enough to give them some kind of fuel to give them their fix, the fix they want that reminds them of being alive, when in reality, everything that's in there should be going towards the light, to quote Zelda Rubinstein. The communication (laughs) you're having is coming from a pool of beings that shouldn't be there. And the other takeaway that I got, and this I want to ask both of you about, was that the spirit guides are there. Everybody has a spirit guide. Uh, Every single person has the spirit guide, but that's just not how you're, you're not going to hear from them this way. You're not going to have a verbal message from a spirit guide. If you're getting a verbal message, it's from one of these things that should actually be moving on and shouldn't be talking to us in the first place. Right. If they can give you a verbal message, it means they're so close they can get through. But if they're close, that means they're low. They're near us. They have not moved on. And this is a this gets talked about in ghost hunting circles a lot. Why are so many restaurants and bars haunted? Hotels. Right, right. And one of the things they talk about is, well, yeah, these these spirits of people who have died but haven't moved on, they haven't moved on because they're still connected to the earth and they're still connected to physical desire. So yeah. they're they're still somehow for some reason some people more than others still want that last glass of wine that cigarette the touch of a man or a woman and so they hang around in areas where this stuff will take place so they can momentarily inhabit your body just for a moment to feel the intoxication of liquor or nicotine or sexual excitement this is what they're looking for and the more they're looking down and obsessing over staying at our party. If they turned their head upward and saw the light, then they could go. But they don't. And and so you hear about people, it's like, oh, you're stuck here. I'm going to release you into the light. And that's what this begins to sound like. When Philippa says, Joe, I want you to think about me every single day and try to picture me and imagine me as hard as you can. Forrest asks the question, what is that doing for her? And clearly what it's doing is keeping her connected. If we're thinking about them, they can stick around. The minute we stop thinking about them, their hold on us goes away. The people that John Keel was talking to, I say people, these spirits, these weird entities, they didn't want to stop talking. They would have talked to him forever. He was the one who was challenged to give it all up stop thinking about it, get out of the game totally, because the more you think about it and the more you look into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. And I think this is a story that follows that same theme. Yeah, you're giving uh, life to Voldemort. 
the more you mention the name. It's also like John Klein uh, in in your movie where the phone rings and then you have to, you know, again, we've, we've joked about this before, but it's that moment of like, uh, well, do you want to pick up the phone for another message at this specific time? And right. he makes a decision. It's like, I got to stop. I got to disengage. Although I personally would have answered the phone. Like, just, just one more. <laughs> just one more. I just got to hear what's on. I got to hear what they got to say. Come on. It's just one more thing. Well, think about that for a second, because also our need for definitive proof, well, that's the perfect lure, because yeah. you keep throwing down breadcrumbs from the other side, and that will keep the intelligent parapsychologist, the semi-skeptic, the debunker, that will keep you on the hook. Whereas if you approach these subjects from a slightly more reserved place, where you're like, hey, I find all this very interesting, but you know what? I don't feel the need to prove it, and I'm not going to base my life on anything you say. Those people, they drift away. They, they go to the seance, then they leave. It's kind of like Rachel, like Joe's girlfriend in the book. She goes to a couple sessions. That's nah, not her cup of tea. doesn't make her feel good. In fact, kind of creeps her out. And so she doesn't go back. And now you look back and go, wow, maybe she was the sanest of all. Well, <laughs> here's my question, too. When you look at where this all led for him and his investigation of this is, was this a series of beings or was it just one? Mm. Obviously, they're on the other side. They have access to all the information, the the data, which, by the way, I don't know where that's coming from either because there's an intersection here with how remote viewing works and acquiring knowledge of uh, geography and uh, mankind's inventions and, and places and time that's different from knowledge of a particular soul, which seems mm. to have been, in this case, all the souls seem to have been made up. So then the next question I have is they're going in that filing cabinet. They're figuring out, okay, this I, I can see this. Bomber wing slept in the grandstands, this kind of plane, that kind of, these people were here. Oh, here's a roster of, or how bi- how many people were in this group. That information is there. But then the next question becomes, you know, was this something, you know, which he alluded to? It's like, if it's not a good angel, then is it a demon? And is this demon got a whole room full of people that it can manipulate by custom making a particular spirit guide for each one of them and stringing them all along and just feeding off of that. Ooh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. So, so going off of that, you've got Russell, Aviva's spirit guide. Right. And then Russell promises to bring in other spirit guides, but Russell, let's say Russell, as he calls himself, is the only spirit that was ever involved. Exactly. But Russell's only got a small audience and he's only getting energy from one or two people. So now you got to cast the net wider and say, well, I can get other people. If you fill the room with people, I can get their spirit guides. But now he's feeding on 30 people. Right. And becoming more and more voracious. And possibly powerful. Exactly. Now, part of the book we didn't really go into was when Joe decided to test some of this information. He said, well, listen, Aviva is only one channeler, and there's a bunch of channelers right here in Toronto. I should be able to go to another channeler and talk to Philippa and Russell. If they're all out there, each one of these channelers is like a phone booth. I should be able to get the same connection at any one of them. How's half a mile going to make a difference? So he goes to, I don't know, half a dozen other channelers that are 
currently working in Toronto at the time, and speaks to them. And in not a single case is he able to communicate with any of these guides that he's getting through Aviva. And they'll say, oh, yes, yes, I know that person very well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, it's going to take some work, but come back in a week and I will, I'll be able to uh, hook you up with uh, your girlfriend, Philippa, or your friend, Russell. It was one of those channelers, one of those other ones, not Aviva, was one named Claire, who was the one that called him when he was in the hospital and said, my spirit guide talked to your spirit guide and they told me you were there. It's like getting a right. note in high school. It's like, what is going on? <laughs> and, and are these spirit guides communicating with each other? Are but, they spirit again, guides at not... all? I, I just don't think they are. I don't think, I think the spirit guides might be real. They might be there if you believe any of this at all. But I don't think that's who anybody was talking to in this story. That's if you define a spirit guide as someone who actually truly has a benevolent exactly. intention toward you. Yeah. Or it could be something that is not trying to so much be malicious, but they want what they want, as Richard was alluding to earlier, that they desire this humanly contact and inter exchange so much that maybe they know it's not the best thing, but uh, yeah, it's not hurting people that much. So I'm just going to continue and get what I need. But it's also uh, an idea. That's the sludge entity scenario that we've since then have heard quite a bit from mediums and people who do energy work that quite often with a spirit oppression, it's a more powerful entity controlling other smaller and less powerful ones. And it could be something that's an elemental or demonic controlling several human spirits, binding them up. Uh, in the case of the sludge entity, it was several Native American spirits that were bound together. And that's why the other spirit guide, the metaphysical uh, spirit warrior, Native American warrior was tr doing what he could on his side in the spirit world to try and free them. And with help from people on this side, human alive people, mediums using different techniques, some involving remote viewing and some involving energy work, were able to not vanquish or destroy this being that was negatively you know, in, sucking the life energy from our friend's son, but they, they made it so uncomfortable they got it to leave and it went off to go mess with other people. Uh, but quickly, like you were talking earlier about uh, Joe's condition, it's something that I said in Strange Intruders Part 2, when people ask, is this dangerous? And it goes back to the question, uh, I think, Richard, you were asking, uh, you know, how do you feel about channeling? And so I always say, take it with a grain of salt. People ask, uh, is studying the jinn dangerous or any of these entities? It's like, well, there's an intellectual curiosity and a pursuit. There's also a longing and that's different, especially people who are vulnerable in some way, emotionally, mentally, physically troubled, dealing with substance abuse. Uh, in Joe's case, perhaps it was uh, uh, some kind of congenital depression effects. You have a weakness of some kind, and, and intentionally or unintentionally, those things find that as a way in. It's a hook. It's a crack in your defenses in your armor, a chink in the armor that they can get in there and more easily wedge their way in, as opposed to somebody else who suffers less from these other negative humanly kinds of things that are obviously very real. Could be mental illness, could be a bunch of different things, dysfunctional family bringing, you know, upbringing. And, and so you're less vulnerable. Now look at this in terms of the UFO phenomenon and the abduction phenomenon, which is also, if you step away from those who believe that these are actual physical 
aliens in nuts and bolts aircraft that are visiting Earth and taking sperm samples. And if we just look at it as stories of perhaps non-physical beings, what goes on in an abduction? In this case, they're not waiting for you to call them down. They're just showing up, taking you, forcing an interaction, taking what they need from you, biological, perhaps emotional. Sometimes they lead you on by telling you about, you know, what might happen to your planet if you're not careful. On the other hand, there are people who are just being abducted throughout their entire lives, as far as they know. And what exactly these aliens or ultra-terrestrials, if you're John Keel, what exactly they're getting from it, we don't know. But it feels like they're getting something. Yeah. They're getting something. Well, everyone's got an agenda, reptilian or regular uh, good old-fashioned gray. Of course, now there's whole schools of thought that somehow those are more spiritual beings than we imagined before. Less just physical people from another planet, <laughs> Xenu, wherever, that they are not so much just um, just another race of, of beings, that somehow they are much more spiritual. And of course, there's a, a big move in the thought that all of these things are grays, aliens, cryptids. There are they are spiritual creatures and more often demons of some kind taking these forms. And maybe that's their workaround to right. get around their rules here. But these things gathering energy and using it for their own own means, but also being able to to get that crack in the armor and then ramp that up, turn that knob up to 11. I just got done seeing a, a screener for the, the Mark of the Bell Witch, uh, another Seth, terrific Seth Breedlove small town monsters uh, documentary which you happen to be in uh, yes okay. i'm not just mentioning because i'm in it but i i am fantastic so uh, when it comes out i think mid-december you should all uh, certainly catch it uh, but what i didn't realize you know when we were covering it and again uh, rich you were talking about our vision about how all this stuff works and it's certainly grown through all the stories and anecdotes and thoughts about it and uh, uh trying to put this together logically as best we can and one thing I kind of realized since we did that story and then being refreshed by it with uh, so many great details in, in the documentary that uh, uh, I had, I was not aware of when we did the uh, show or even when we shot uh, my segment for it, is that, again, it's a thought later that what started off is animal scratchings and knockings, rapping, uh, as we've known from um, the whole spiritualist movement, rapping was, was big. These small movements then evolved into, as the family paid more attention to it, and then the neighbors got involved and more people were talking about it in this small uh, little village. And as that started to build, like maybe a tulpa or egregore, some kind of a thought creature, then it had increased. Then it was whispers. Yeah. And then people start hearing whispers. And it's like, it couldn't quite put together sentences and then, of course, now people are talking about the whispers. And as that got more focus and attention, now it could actually speak out loud. And people were hearing it, not just in your mind's ear, but people were hearing disembodied voices. And there was right. more poltergeist activity. So as the, the more interaction that it had and more energy was being directed towards it and more fear, frankly, it could generate, the stronger, the bigger, the more powerful it seemed to get. But was this a bundle of things? And that's what's changed for me is I, I don't think it was just one entity, you know, Kate Bat's witch. I think it may have been a collective. My name is Legion, for we are many. Something that was a collection of things or something barring a cup of supernatural sugar from your other spirit neighbor 
uh, and it could be information, it could be a little bit of energy or power, but it was a bunch of things operating and, you know, goodness knows how those things work on the other side. But I, I, I do, I'm more in line with Scott's thing in that I think there were several, many, maybe many things happening, operating together in conjunction, but in some unknown cooperation, some kind of collective. I think one of the takeaways from this book is that if you, especially if you're a paranormal investigator, and I was already thinking this even, you know, before, even with our 2.5 investigations that we've done, but like, you've just got to be incredulous and cautious if you're getting some kind of communication about believing what you're hearing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talk a lot about the co-creation theory and how when people have these experiences, whether it's a ghost or a UFO or whatever that they are, or even if you're working as a medium, somehow you are co-creating the event that you're experiencing if for no other reason than it is your physical brain that is interpreting what is happening. And if all things of this nature are based on co-creation, then that also suggests that there is a a further level of cooperation. We have to be giving something to get something. And if we're giving something, they are getting something. What is their interest in communicating with us at all? That's what I've always wondered. Who are these aliens? And why do they just keep coming here doing the same experiments over and over again? It seems pointless. Poltergeist activity seems absurd. The more you read about the poltergeist, the less sense it makes. In that the stories are often, they, you know, they, they sort of follow a particular narrative and the events are different, but they're different in their absurdity. And now you get this, the spirit guides who can't even get their own names right. So again, I guess it, it's just when you reach into that black bag and feel around in the dark, you really don't ever know what you're going to pull out. That's going to wrap up this series. A very special thanks to our good friend Richard Haddam. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. My names are spelled however they see fit. R-O-D-L-E-Y Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. K-I-L-L Future Compensation. Period. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.